0: And welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 188, in which Captain Phil is back interviewing me about a variety of very important topics, including. The Foundation series, which will be debuting on Apple TV+. And we recorded this just a few hours ago this afternoon, after news broke about the bombings at the Kabul airport and the nearby hotel. So we did talk about that, and we talked about how Harry Seldon's psychohistory might have predicted and worked out a way of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, but maybe not the large number of people who refused to take the vaccine. So rather than describing that interview, you can hear it right now.
1: The Light on Light Through podcast.
0: And I have with
1: me my good friend, writer teacher commentator ombudsman musician buckaroo you're basically buckaroo bonsai aren't you paul <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you know um i i just have to break in there, there's just been a breaking news report there has been an explosion at the kabul airport uh this morning it's something that um I believe uh, Russia was warning us about last night. It's it's uh, worrisome and upsetting, uh, but not unexpected. Um, Paul, um, before we get started, I just wanted to drop that in, in there that that's happening. You're listening to Lunch on Thursdays. Bill McDolte. Captain Phil is filling in for Bill. Bill is fine. He's spending time with his family. No, he did not commit any atrocities. He's not a politician. (laughs) He's not. When he says he's spending time with his family, he's actually spending time with his family. Um, But, Paul, before we get down and and dig deep, um, give us your credits. Where do we find Paul Levinson on the World Wide Web? Uh, I, I hear you have a big review or discussion about the upcoming Foundation television series. Uh, So lay lay it out for us, uh, Paul.
0: Okay, well, you can find me in a whole bunch of places. First of all, I I talk about everything I'm doing on Twitter. That's at Paul Lev, P-A-U-L-L-E-V. You can find all of my books, ranging from my science fiction novels to my nonfiction. And the most recent book actually is a book-length interview uh, based on a transcript of uh, an interview I did with Rufus Sewell about his character, John Smith, uh, that that really fascinating character in the Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle. So if you just search on Paul Levinson on Amazon, you'll find that book and I know about 40 other books. And then on Spotify, if you search on Paul Levinson, you'll find all of my music, including uh, Welcome Up, my 2020 album, and my other album, Twice Upon a Rhyme, that came out back in 1972. And I just saw, actually, last night, that it's doing, once again, very well. It's surging in Japan. So I have a real fan base in Japan. You've got, uh, you got
1: to say something about the Japanese. They know good music. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly right maybe that explains why I've always loved Japanese food so much so uh, over these years I hope to go there and do an in-person concert when uh, the COVID part of this crazy existence that we've been living hopefully has been more or less put to rest um so so that's that's pretty much it. You, you mentioned uh, the Foundation series, which I'm really thrilled about. It's going to uh, debut on Apple TV Plus at the end of September. And I actually did a podcast, having not seen anything yet other than The Travelers for this series. But I talked about why I think that's so important. That is uh, my podcast, Light On Light Through. Just the way it sounds, L-I-G-H-T-O-N-L-I-G-H-T-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com is the way to get there. And uh, I will be reviewing every episode of uh, the Foundation series on my podcast. And in fact, a recording of what we're talking about right now will show up on my podcast in a couple of days. So if you're a podcast person uh that's where you can listen to my podcast
1: and you can uh yeah and, and replay this and, and hear all about this you know it's it's you know just just to take a moment to talk about the asimov work um does the foundation series you know which which was written uh came out in the 1940s uh does it have anything to teach us today and today in 2021 is is there something to be gleaned uh from the story of Psychohistory and, you know, everything that related to, the, to it. I'm assuming the TV show is basically the, the trilogy, the first three books by Asimov, not the, the later ones. Is that right?
0: Well, they're planning to do eight seasons, ten episodes each. And so my guess is the first season won't even be the trilogy. It'll probably just be the first book and maybe a little bit of the prequels which came out in the 1980s. Uh, But we'll just have to see. But to answer your question, there's an enormous amount of relevance to this study of psychohistory that Asimov put into such dramatic uh, and exciting fashion in his foundation stories and then the trilogy and then the later works. Because what it basically is looking at is the limitations of science. If we had a science that enabled us to predict the future, which by the way we already have, in that sense, psychohistory presage all these statistical analyses that we do now, ranging from predicting elections to, I mentioned COVID uh, a minute or two ago, the, the trajectory of this horrible pandemic. Everything we do now can be uh, put into statistical form, put into a chart, where we can then see literally in graphic form where we think it's going to be headed in the future. That's in effect what Psycho History is all about and what Harry Seldon, the fictional character in the Foundation series, invented. And what makes these stories so exciting though as fiction is of course these statistical projections work and they work and they work very well And they surprise people who insist that you can't go by that, that you just have to uh, look at reality. There's a powerful empire. It's not really in decline. There's a powerful general. But people who are following the statistics of cycle history say, well, no, uh, it may look powerful now, but it's about to crumble. And so cycle history keeps working and working and working until one fine day it comes uh, upon something in the universe which was not predictable in the cycle history a mutation i won't get into any more details case a listener hasn't read the uh, stories but but that's where the action really gets exciting because then we see what happens when the people the scientists who have developed these statistics are up against an essentially unpredictable development, therefore not mappable in the prior statistics. And this is something that we face every day today. You know, if you think again, getting back to, to COVID, we had certain projections as to what would happen when vaccines became available. But no one predicted that here in the United States, there would be such resistance to vaccinations among some people. And in addition to that, we knew there would be variants, but nobody could predict the exact characteristics of the Delta variant. And so the combination of those two, the, the uh, recalcitrant, frankly, I'm sorry to say it, but that's what it is, stupidity of people who don't get vaccinated combined with the very contagion of the Delta variant, the high contagion. Well, uh, the combination of those two has knocked out of kilter the statistical medical epidemiology projections about what was going to happen in the age of COVID. And we're going to be into some more bumps as well down the line. And, you know, as a matter of fact, you mentioned the report today, what what's happening right now in Afghanistan. So, I mean, you know, these things are unpredictable. You know, Biden is trying to pull out. I applaud that, uh, you know, you can't blame him for this. You know, this, you know, people I'm sure are gonna say, well, he pulled out too soon. They took advantage, ISIS-K, yeah, of course. This though could have happened and would have happened whenever we pulled out. So the only way this wouldn't have happened is if we had stayed in Afghanistan and we, we've already been there for 20 years. So we're we going to do stay there for what? Two hundred years? Two thousand years? You know that there has to be a limit. We can't uh, patrol the entire world with that level of intensity. So, and trillions and a trillions
1: of dollars, trillions of dollars spent, with with almost nothing to show for it.
0: Yeah, well, look, you're right. Almost nothing, but the the other part that it almost there it was something. It did bring stability to the area for 20 years. Okay, and, I'll um, give you that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you can see even today, people are saying it's this group ISIS K, a, a splinter group of the ISIS that was defeated in Syria and Iraq a few years ago, and uh, you know, who knows what would have happened with ISIS and the Taliban, if we had withdrawn five years earlier, we might now be facing not only uh, a, a defeated ISIS caliphate uh, in Syria and Iraq, but a very vibrant ISIS power in Afghanistan. Because for all we know, the future of Afghanistan now may be in the hands of ISIS even more than the Taliban. But I mean, We just don't know. So. Psychohistory is relevant to all that, and I I have to tell you, as I mentioned in my uh, podcast musings, the Foundation instantly became my favorite series of books when I first read it as a kid in the 1950s. I read it again Uh, in, I guess, like 1973, 74, I was taking a science fiction class at NYU, and then uh, I read it uh, about ten years, a little more later, uh, when uh, my son Siren now was about nine or ten years old, and he read it. And I decided to read it uh, again so I could be totally uh, on key when I was talking to him about it. And th- those readings confirmed what I thought when I was a kid that this is in a class by itself. So. Uh, I'm really delighted that it's finally getting to the screen. And
1: I always enjoyed uh, the fourth book in the Foundation trilogy. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, yes. You know, Foundation's Edge. And I believe when Foundation's Edge came out, I think that was my ticket into it. I was, I think I might have read them when I was getting my master's degree at Stony Brook, and I talked uh, my master's thesis prof into letting me do uh, a paper on science fiction. And he didn't know anything about science fiction. And he said to me, you're going to love this, Paul. He said to me when I proposed my project, he says, are you going to be able to find enough material to talk about science fiction? (laughs) And then, you know, and and of course I had, in those days, I had access. I I did magazine science fiction from, I think, the 1920s to the 1950s or something like that. You It's just like the genesis of science fiction and how it started out, you know, the Gernsback era and, and morphed into the Campbellian era. And and the funny thing was, I did all this research, but I but Sam Moskowitz was alive back then, so I sat down with Sam and talked about it, you know, and it was, it was the greatest thing ever, you know, because uh, Sam was sort of local. I think he lived in Jersey or New York or someplace, you know. So so I remember coming into him into his office and showing him my research, and 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 he couldn't believe that I was quoting Argosy magazine and things like that, which would sort of like raise the the bar in his estimation. And then it took uh, two sessions. Normally the the master's thesis students would come in for one session. He'd double check with you and and we got to talking and I ended up having to go back the following week because he just wanted to talk about it for so long. And so it it was a great experience for me. I believe that's when I read um, Foundation. When I even went back further I read Asimov's before the Golden Age, that collection, mm-hmm. you know, and and it was great stuff. And I just remember loving it. And 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 you know, I loved reading Stanley Weinbaum, you know, and and all those guys. Um, but the Foundation trilogy, the original trilogy, was was such an amazing thing. And, and Asimov, the young man, what is he making? Like a half a cent a word, a penny a word for yeah. that stuff. And and here it is. Here it is. Like you know. It's being dramat, dramat, dramatized on a on a on a platform that a science fiction writer couldn't even envision <laughs> back in okay. the day a streaming service on a worldwide web that you can watch on your telephone <laughs> if you choose to do it. it that way I mean that's, that's right. crazy, you know
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know I proposed Foundation's edge in talking about technological progress. it came out in nineteen eighty two. And I saw a note about it somewhere in the New York Times. It wasn't even really a review. But I I remember I said to my wife, my God, Asimov finally did it. He came out with a fourth novel in this series. And so I jumped into my car. We were living in the Bronx then. And I drove up to a Barnes & Noble in Yonkers, And I tore into the store. And sure enough, there were a stack of Foundations Edge. And I bought the book, brought it home, and read it. And I often think about that because that's the way we got books in those days. Yes. Now, nowadays, basically, I could have gotten it instantly. I oh, would have had to drive up the Arkansas on, on you know through through Amazon's Kindle, and uh, you know that's made uh, you know life much, much, much better. Uh, by the way, Sam Moskowitz lived a long time, so uh, you know you, you got him like in his not his old age at all in terms of his lifespan. I would say middle to old age when, when you were talking to him that. Day. You know
1: what was great about Sam, and and I was at Lunacon, and you know we'll talk about politics eventually, but <laughs> I was yeah. at Lunacon, and I sat down with Sam, and Sam. Was very keen to talk to me because I was a young man back then, and my my fiance uh, Annette was was also very young. And Annette's a beautiful woman, and, and she was in the flower of her youth back then. And all these guys wanted to sit and talk with us because I had this hot babe with me, you know. <laughs> so so and Sam had that that issue with his throat where he used the the vibrating thing. He you know his larynx was removed, and, and he would talk with that buzzing thing. And my wife's uncle had the same situation, so they got into this long discussion about how well, because Sam could talk for hours with that thing. It was amazing, you know, and, and he never had throat cancer, and he had some other issue. But but I remember sitting with him and, and, and asking him questions, and, and the funny thing about Sam was he wanted to know where I was getting his books, like what libraries were carrying his books. And he was fast, and I said, well, I picked up a lot of your books at the Patchogue Library, and he said, Oh yes, that's a branch library. They, they have and he knew. He knew what libraries had, his books, and I, I that was I was gobsmacked, you know, when I was talking to him about that. I would ask him questions and things. So I think I asked him I didn't know what a set was. And you know, we were talking about fanzines and, and how, you know, people were like sharing information and stuff. And he talked about a and machine in one of his one of his uh, books or you know whatever. And uh, and yeah, it was it was just crazy. And then I just remember this is funny. Um, as I'm talking to him, Julie Schwartz, Julie Schwartz, mm-hmm. comes by and wants to sit and talk with us too, because he was Ray Bradbury's first agent, so he wanted to talk with us too. And Sam didn't want to share me internet with him.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> he wanted to be he. Wa- I just thought that was the greatest thing. So it's, it's you know, it was it was a very wow. memorable experience, and it's just bringing it, talking about Foundation is bringing it all back, you know. Okay.
0: Well, well, it's fabulous. And Lunacon was it literally was about five minutes from where uh, we we still live. Uh, because if, Lunacon, as you know, for uh, many years was in Rye, New York. Yeah, yeah. Down the road, 287. And I had all, all, also all kinds of great experience with these originators of science fiction fandom. David Kyle, yes. I had never met him. But we appeared together in the same uh, documentary. It's called "The Evolution of Science Fiction" on the History Channel. By the way, if you search on my name, Paul Levinson, on YouTube, and you scroll around, you know, down my through my videos, you'll find I have a clip of uh, this, "The Evolution of Science Fiction." Anyway, so David Kyle and I were both in this, and and so I had the pleasure of meeting for the first time. I walked into. You know, one of the Lunacons, and there was David Kahn, we looked at each other, and David Collins said, hey, great being on this show with you. <laughs> I, said, I said, are you kidding? Was, I think I was lucky to be on that show with you. And uh, it was just an amazing thing. By the way, I just want to mention about Isaac Asimov. You mentioned he worked for probably a half a penny a word. I- Isaac Asimov was a great believer and As long as he was paid, he would do it. And I learned that literally in one of my first published books called In Pursuit of Truth, Essays on the Philosophy of Karl Popper. It actually was an anthology. I got philosophers around the world to write about the British philosopher Karl Popper. And it came down to, I was thinking, who will I get to write the preface? And so I came up with the brilliant idea that I get two people to write the preface, a political person and more of of a philosophic person. So for the political person, I managed to get Helmut Schmidt, who just had finished being Chancellor of West Germany, because I heard through the grapevine that he was a, a great uh, uh, fan, literally of Karl Popper and his work. But I decided for the philosophic point of view, I would get Isaac Asimov, and I remember I spoke to the uh, publisher, um, and, and I was saying, well, how, how much does uh, Humanities press? um a guy named silverman and i said to him you know what, what can we offer isaac asimov he said just just offer him hundred dollars because how <laughs> Schmidt didn't want any money because he was a politician and i was like mortified i said are you kidding i'm, I'm gonna offer isaac asimov a hundred dollars and and silverman said trust me he'll take it he won't even debate about it so i remember i spoke to my wife talking about it i said look we i we have to i have to be ready to offer more money Because $100 is is a pittance to Isaac Asimov. This also, by the way, was literally uh, like maybe a year before Foundation's Edge came out in 1981. So I call Isaac Asimov up. I get his number. I I spell the whole thing out. And he says, okay. You you want me to write it? I said, yeah. And then I say, so, and then like, "Ah, I could could barely get the words out of my mouth. I'm the publisher. would like to give you an honorarium of $100. Asimov said, Deal. Thank you.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's. I love it. I I love it. <laughs> yeah. So he uh, he worked for half a penny a word. He would work anything as long as he was paid. That was the key.
1: I love it. I love it. Yeah. Such a great story. Yeah. Speaking of foundation and and um, you know, um, Asimov in the series. Um, with with the Delta variant, um, would would the Delta variant be considered the mule, the unpredictable, you know, element in our foundation, in our story, or did we anticipate? Uh. Did we anticipate Delta? I mean, you know, wh- 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 what's your thoughts on that? Is 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 you know, or is it is it is is the mule our reaction to the Delta variant?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that that given the ubiquitous nature of pandemics, and obviously they've been plaguing humanity a long time. You know, the Black Plague was a pandemic. You know, the the wrongly named Spanish flu because it probably originated in Kansas. That was a pandemic. Uh, and, And by the way, those pandemics were as serious as the COVID pandemic is. Those pandemics were even worse. You know the uh, the black plague killed as many as like three-fifths of the population in, in many areas in which it spread. So I think that uh, psychohistory would have taken those into account. Um, and as far as you know the the reaction to the pandemic, yes, that's what I was saying. that, that would be something which probably would not have been taken into account. that people are not going to take the vaccine that they're going to somehow be convinced by inane uh, substanceless arguments about, uh, you know, some of them is outrightly crazy that the vaccine has, you know, a little nanobots in it that it will enable the government. I don't know who Bill Gates to control you after you get the vaccine. I mean, just sheer errant nonsense. Uh, That would be in effect a minor version uh, of the mule but of course the mule was much more serious than that because the mule was more than just an unpredictable glitch in a particular treatment the, the mule basically overturned everything that was in psychohistory and and that's why it was a good thing that there was a second foundation in addition to the first foundation again the sheer brilliance of asimov reasoning that okay We can let things work out without, you know, just making sure we don't get in the way of psychohistory. But if something really serious happens, we have an insurance policy. So in a way, what Asimov was saying way back then is he was hedging his bets. He was saying psychohistory is brilliant and excellent, but you need an insurance policy in case psychohistory doesn't work. And that's what the second foundation was. So um, the the real issue now relating it to COVID is what's our insurance policy going uh, to be?
1: There it what, is. What are yeah. we going
0: to do now? And uh, it, it's really tough. Um, you, you know, I mean, I read something. out if you saw. Paul Krugman had a great op-ed piece in the New York Times, in which he talked about the quiet rage yes. of the responsible. Yeah. And you know, he, he's completely right. I mean. You know, people like you and me and anyone with half a brain, we're, we are getting, we got vaccinated. We'll even go get third, you know, shot because, you know, we understand the science of it. That we may not understand every little last element of the science, but we have confidence in the science of it from what we are able to understand. And uh, nonetheless, we're now on the verge of going into yet another lockdown. And, you know, Tina and I, we, we're up on Cape Cod now. We were, we were up on Cape Cod at the end of May, the beginning of June. And that's before this Delta variant really took hold. And we were beginning, you know, to go into restaurants. We'd still be seated outside, but we were a little bit more relaxed. We went, you know, shopping in supermarkets. We still wore masks because, you know, we wanted to be careful. But now that we've been up here for a couple of weeks, everything has changed. Uh, up here and everywhere and and in the United States because there are breakthrough cases. Th- this, this Delta variant is very robust. And who knows what else is going to come out of this large pool, millions and millions of Americans who have not been vaccinated. Well, that's, and, and that's uh, the question that,
1: that worries me because, and, and I'm very, I'm very nervous about it, you know, um, I do have comorbidities. My wife has comorbidities. I have a handicapped son. You know, who, you know, and, and there, there are issues there as well. And you know, when the vaccines first came out, of course, I sat in my Facebook feed and and read all my friends from all over the spectrum, all different places. You know, of fandom or music or whatever. I knew these people from, and I read as they got the uh, the you know the vaccinations and their effects. And once. I read that, then I actively saw you know, and this is before I was even allowed to get vaccinated in New York State, okay? So, so I, I, I like, weighed the, you know, the issues and said, okay, it seems like things, you know, the worst... I, I didn't mean anybody who died, you know, or had a terrible reaction from the vaccination, you know? But I, I knew a lot of people who got deathly ill or died, you know, from actual COVID. So, right there... You know, I'm like, okay, so I know what path I want to take. So I didn't go into it uninformed and, you know, trusting. I wasn't just a sheep. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is a deadly thing. I'm not going to mess with this. This is more than just putting on my safety belt when I'm driving the car. You know, it's it's, it's more than that. So I, I find it, I find it uh, incredible where we're going to now. And I feel like what's going down in Texas and... Florida especially with the issues with schools that I feel like there's going to be another variant to explode out of that I mean the, the the hospitals are filling up and kids are getting sick now you know so it's 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 frightening it's terrifying um yeah so
0: yeah look I uh, I you know I my uh, daughter runs a um I still think of it as a kindergarten it's that known as like a you know, I don't know, preschool or something in Manhattan. And she has, uh, as an advisor, a, a very uh, in-depth and high-level uh, epidemiologist. And she said just the other day, uh, our daughter told us they had a, a meeting uh, with the faculty uh, and, 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 income, and the incoming parents, what they're going to be doing about COVID in this school. She said that they are now definitely seeing here in New York City a sharp increase in the number of kids coming in with COVID cases, and obviously anyone younger than 12 is not being vaccinated you know and yep. and, you know, and so she said, and I hope this is uh, not true that uh, we're, we're three seconds before car, the car crash that you know she thinks it's going to be a really bad. Uh, outburst here in the new york area so we're not out of the woods uh, with this yet and um, i mean in the back you know, of my mind I say to myself is this because we didn't
1: really push the vaccines out to the world you know because you know months ago india was 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 blasted with this stuff and I don't know for certain but you probably know uh, if if you know the delta mutation came out of that in india but shouldn't we be moving this stuff all over the world? You know, if 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 it's burning through a population in a third world country, it's going to come and get us eventually, you know?
0: Yeah, I absolutely it's a worldwide problem. Even if everyone was vaccinated here in the United States, if there are large segments of the world where there are a lot of people who have not been vaccinated, that absolutely is uh an incubation area for new variants which could be much worse than than the delta variant and look as we know and, and not to get back into this again uh, the, the whole response at least here in the united states got off to an horrendous start with that lunatic in the white house uh, you know babbling about uh you know, Hydroxychloroquine, just you know, yeah. uh, yeah. disinfectants, and he's still babbling away. I mean, basically, that now some of his supporters are talking about. I just saw last night, out if you saw it, some kind of medication that's used to treat yeah. worm infections in cattle. Yeah, that, what connection does that have to COVID? But it's like anything but the vaccine. So everything got off to a bad start. Somebody must have not-
1: stock in that company, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, I
0: think it probably was. Uh, I'll tell you, but I mean, they, you know, Biden almost had no choice. Things were in such bad shape here in the United States that he basically devoted the early days of his administration to making sure as many Americans as possible got the vaccine because of all the misinformation that had been out there, which is still causing problems. But but yes, there's no doubt that we have to do both. We have to vaccinate as many people in the United States and we have to get the vaccine out to as many people around the world as possible. And uh, it's not an easy job. And, you know, we're we're not out of the woodwork yet. I mean, the, the only ray of optimism that I have in the long, long run, and this goes back to the Black Plague, back then there were no vaccines. And there were no real medications for it, and uh, you know, it, in many areas, the death toll was unbelievable. But even in those areas that were hit the worst, where three fifths of the population died, two fifths survived, and I think that shows that human beings, as a biome, have a very strong resilience. And I, so I think we'll come out of that both be, out, of, out of this COVID pandemic, both because of that and because of the vaccines and our inventions. But boy, it, it's not easy. And, uh, and this has been another whole topic. One of the problems with social media, which I by and large love, but they give a megaphone to everyone, including the dangerously misinformed and including people who want To deceive, either because they're insane or they're evil. Those are the two reasons somebody would want to deceive other people about something as serious as how to best treat COVID and how to prevent getting it in the first place. Uh, And and you know the social media are finally beginning to do something, and they've been actually doing this for for months already. But they need to even step that up. You know, make sure. that these sources of disinformation don't get such wide distribution in fact are shut out completely from social media and as you know I'm no friend of censorship I I don't like the government censoring, I don't like private industry censoring, I believe in freedom of speech but not at the cost of human lives I I I think life is more important than free expression because if you live uh, you, and your expression has been curtailed as long as you're alive, you can get it back at some point. If you die, it doesn't matter anymore about free expression for you because you're dead. you're not going to be able to communicate yeah. anywhere. Uh, yeah, you know
1: it's it's I'm thinking about your analogy with the Black Death, you know the black plague and and you know how how the human gene you know the, the human species has seems to have survivability built into its evolution. But that doesn't doesn't count for heartbreak and pain and suffering and, and I think if we were going a little forward uh, with with getting people vaccinated um, I think we could be avoiding that I mean there's so many there's so many sad stories I mean I mean you know, there, there was like law officers um, in in um, Texas who were you know true anti-vaxxers they're dead <laughs> they died you know they caught it and died you know um, the, the, the governor of, of Florida is trying to defund school districts who are putting out mask mandates to protect children. Those children, in turn, now are getting sick, and some of them are being hospitalized. I mean, I don't think anybody wants that. I don't think the most, you know, stringent anti-masking, anti-vaccine person doesn't want any harm to come to to a child. So, at some point, you have to like. You know, open your eyes and see the reality of the situation. You know that. You know, and 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 the things people have said during this course of the pandemic. I, I believe one one um, elected official, and maybe it was it sounds like it was Texas, said that um, the older population should take the hit for the good of the economy. <laughs> you know, like if you get infected out being out and about shopping, well, it's good for the economy. So if you get infected, well then you did your part, you know, and see, uh, I'm like, seriously, <laughs> you
0: know. Well, you know I mean, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was saying, you know, the, it, the opposition to mass again, just shows how depraved these anti-vaxxers and anti-masking people are because as you said before, before you got your, you know, first, uh, my first dose, shot, yep. Yeah, you research it a little because right, it's a serious thing when someone injects something into your body. And I'm, you I'm definitely afraid of needles, Paul. <laughs> you
1: yeah, know, I'm,
0: I'm a chicken. Yeah. You know, I was afraid. Yeah. I was more afraid of the needle than the side effects. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, nobody wants that. Nobody likes that. So, the, a, a, a little reluctance and a little care, and read a little bit, and try to understand what's going on—that makes sense. But as far as masks are concerned. What's the problem with wearing a mask? You know, uh, frankly, in, in the case of some people, like, again, Trump, he looked better in a mask. <laughs> you know, he's covered, he's covered up part of his face. He should have been very happy about that. And, uh, you know, the same with a lot of these Republican uh, ugly governors. Uh, they, they look better in a mask, too. So, you know. He, he could have uh, been he,
1: selling the masks. He could have been selling red mega masks and, and paying his legal bills with the sales of the masks, you know. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Uh, exactly right. And you know, they they get so en- enraged. You know, you can't tell me what to wear in my face. And uh, you know, one of the problems is, is is a lack of intelligence and a lack of education. Because anyone who's taken the most basic philosophy course, I guess, in college, but maybe even in high school, surely has heard of. It's attributed to various people John Stuart Mill, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes jr. a whole bunch of people get credit for this. They all said pretty much the same thing which said, hey you know I'm a libertarian, uh, I support your right to swing your arm as far and wide as you want as long as it doesn't hit into my nose yeah. So I mean that that's basically a very fundamental point it's easy to understand and you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, if, if I walk outside today uh, and I'm wearing a really ugly shirt, that is, uh, you know, that's my business. I mean, you might not enjoy looking at it, but you can't tell me what kind of shirt to wear. But the, the, whatever shirt I wear has no impact on you other than maybe an aesthetic impact. But if you don't wear a mask, that, that's something completely different. That's swinging your arm potentially in a way that literally hits somebody else's nose. And, and if it's being hit with COVID that I expel because I'm not wearing a mask, you're gonna get sick, you could even die. So, you know it, it, it's a very fundamental point. Wearing a mask does nothing bad to the person who's wearing it. It might be uncomfortable. You might not think you look good. Although I have to tell you, I saw an ad on television about three or four months ago, and I I should have researched it, now I'll probably never be able to find it, uh, because I wanted to be able to cite the people who made the ad. It was an ad that showed some very attractive women wearing masks. And, you know, they were like looking at the camera with their eyes, like in a very seductive way, you know, the way that models would look at the camera. But wearing a mask. And it made the point that, hey, you can look good in a mask. You know, it, it's not something that makes you look bad. Most people so, say,
1: I look better masks, you know, after, after, yeah. after you know, once there are a few, you know, a complete cure is found for this. Um, I believe there's going to be a petition circulated that Captain Phil should be wearing a mask at all times, pandemic or no pandemic. <laughs> My wife makes me wear it in the morning when I get up. (laughs) Just kidding. She doesn't do that.
0: Well, I'm going back. I'll be teaching at Fordham University actually next week. They're resuming in-person education, which I'm not particularly happy about, but that's what the university is doing. I'm going to be wearing a mask. I expect my popularity as a professor to soar. (laughs) <laughs> Look at
1: that cool guy with a mask. But bum. Who was that yeah. masked man? <laughs> well, it's it's going on twelve forty three. We have a hard stop at one o'clock. I would be uh, you know, it would be a mistake not to talk about Afghanistan. Um, my one thing I wanna to do to say about Afghanistan was all the criticism that Joe Biden has, getted and, and has gotten over how this is going, there's, there's two things I want to drop in the mix. The first thing I want to drop into the mix is that this deal, this pullout was engineered during the Trump uh, era and the Trump administration. And military movements do not happen in a vacuum. They do not happen. You don't call up the military and say, we need to do this, you know, by three o'clock this afternoon. And then they say, okay, and then it's done. These things, this was a huge... Undertaking, and there, and there probably should have been plans, or there were plans in place when the deal was cut, and when these Taliban people were released from jail in Pakistan. So my question number one is: Where are um, where are those plans? <laughs> you know, where are the plans? You know, of the Trump because Trump thinks he won the election, so if he thinks he's president, obviously he this would have been on his. If he had won the election, this would have been happening on his watch. So, a What's what's the plan? And B, this has been compared to Saigon, you know, to the fall of Saigon. The amount of air people airlifted has been so, so much higher than what was happened in Vietnam in 1975. Uh, I believe the total amount of people airlifted in Vietnam uh, was equal to one day. Uh, that that our military was, was able to do. So in the time we have left, Paul, I, I threw those ideas out there, so I'm just going to ask you to run with that.
0: Yeah, well, let me just, uh, you know, to sort of back up a little bit and give a little historical context, here's what I think is the source of the problem, the very serious problem that we're now facing in Afghanistan. If you think about the end of World War II, and, you know, that was a horrible war to say the least. And, you know, in Japan, we dropped two atom bombs, did horrible damage. In Germany, we liberated concentration camps, one of the horrors of history. But one of the fascinating things about the end of that war is that we, the victors, mainly the Americans, but with the help of our allies, we managed to get both of those countries, Japan and Germany, or at least West Germany, because East Germany fell under Soviet domination, managed to get Japan and West Germany on their feet as democracy. In fact, as such stable and strong democracies that to this day, Japan is flourishing as a democracy, and West Germany was so successful as a democracy that eventually when the Soviet Union fell, it, it became united with East Germany, and now Germany is a democracy. So that was a wonderful development in history, but unfortunately, in retrospect, it proved to be inapplicable to uh, what happened in Afghanistan. The The difference is Germany and Japan were, even though they were dictatorships and totalitarian countries, they were on an equivalent level in the development of their culture and technology as the allies. And so because of that, it proved to be not that great uh, an undertaking to get them to shift into a democracy similar to the United States and England. The problem with Afghanistan, and again, this is the wisdom of hindsight, is they were never at that level. They, they have a culture and a way of life, and had a culture and way of life that was, you know, maybe akin to what Europe was in the 1500s, 1600s. Yeah, even before that, Daniel, that was the age of the Enlightenment. So, so you know, maybe before that, before the, the Renaissance season. And the, the idea... And this, isn't, we, and this we, isn't to put the Afghans down. That's right. We doesn't put them down. They're entitled to their culture, of course. But But the notion that we can somehow transform them by our presence into a democracy the way we did in Japan and Germany after World War II, it it proved to be uh, something that we couldn't do because we did not have the same kind of culture to transform into a democracy. And we've learned the hard way that it wouldn't have mattered. And that's why I said earlier, if we stayed there 20 years, 200 years, 2000 years, the basis of that transformation remained the same. And so in retrospect, the reason that things fell apart so quickly, I think, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, you know, I've read this in a whole bunch of places, the whole previous Afghan government w- was was a myth to some extent. It, it went through the motions of being a government, but it was not a real government and a real democracy in in the way that you know Japan and Germany and, and other countries around the world now have uh, th- that kind of, of government. Uh, it, it looked good on paper. It looked good on the surface, but as soon as the United States left, it fell apart because it, it only worked with this powerful military to make sure that it worked. So that I think is the basis for what we're seeing now. And you know, to answer your question specifically, I don't think Trump had a plan. You know, you're giving him too much credit. I think Trump did everything you know, by the seat of his pants, you know, he, he, he had advisors, uh, whether he followed them, or these were his own ideas, we'll never know. But even his advisors were not particularly people who had experience in this. And I, I think, I actually think that Trump was right, that it was time to get out of Afghanistan. But I also think that he didn't have a clue as to how this would happen, what to do if things went wrong, what to do if things fell apart more quickly. So so there is no plan to, to look at. And what this means is Biden is taking things day by day. I think in terms of what happened uh, just a few hours uh, before our conversation began today uh, at, at the Afghan airport, wh- I think that Biden is gonna change to some extent what his ongoing and continually evolving plan is for us to get out of Afghanistan. He now has to take into account that there's apparently a force there, ISIS-K, which uh, is not gonna go along with what the Taliban wants to do. Assuming that the Taliban does want to try to help us get out of there as quickly and as bloodlessly as possible because they just want us out of there so they can be in control of their own country. But I think ISIS-K is an enemy of the Taliban as well as the United States. And, you know, it's a complete mess. And, uh, my guess is right now at this very moment, Biden is seriously considering what options, uh, he has. And, uh, you know, getting out of there August 31st, he said all well, along well, he's not going to do it if there are any Americans still left there. And uh, there are a lot of people who've been pressuring him appropriately. Don't do it even if they are pressuring him appropriately. Don't do it even if there are Afghans who helped us over these 20 years and they still need to get out of there. So we haven't seen the end of this uh, at all. It's funny the media was calling for
1: um, the... You know the the pulling out of those Afghan allies, the the interpreters, the people who work with us, thousands of people and their families. You know, I the you know the 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 liberal news media, the quote unquote liberal news media, you know, has been calling for to pull those those people out for weeks prior to this whole thing. Uh, did it take that long for the Biden administration to have have a come to Jesus moment and? start doing this or was this always do you think this was always in the works they just weren't talking about it
0: no I mean I think that I think that I think Biden did and his administration did give this a lot of thought but that's why what I said before I think you know is is the one of the key elements that we need to understand this that they the Biden administration under estimated how weak the Afghan government was uh so weak that in effect it wasn't even a real government i mean there was a guy in charge there was a government it was a government on paper but but again it was just a thin crust over something which was not at all a democracy was not at all in many ways a modern uh Country, and again, that's okay, there are different parts of the world, but uh, the, the assumption that Biden and the American strategists made was that that government would hold together long enough for a, a much more orderly withdrawal. And as you probably know, there are all kinds of scenarios that were drawn up, and th- it, the earliest that any scenario saw the Afghan government falling to the Taliban was maybe the end of September. So that was off by a good month or more. No one expected it to be, you know, a little more than a week. And I think that's what got us into this situation here. Yeah. And unfortunately, we still haven't seen all of it play out. I mean, two, two remarkable
1: things I read uh, last night or heard about last night first these two congress people who went in one republican one democrat who went in unannounced and made nancy pelosi's head explode (laughs) okay i i thought that was ridiculous uh it was it was basically uh posturing but late last night you know i i read that there's some california school field trip or overseas trip and these kids are over these students are over there and i'm like First of all, who takes a school trip to Afghanistan in a pandemic? You know, <laughs> right there, I'm like, wow, you know. But I don't understand that. I mean, and then and then we're hearing about this just a couple of days before the 31st. I thought the first sign of trouble, would get the kids out of there. And now we're hearing that these these kids can't get to the airport and stuff like that. I mean, we only have like about five minutes left here. Um, you, you know, I, I, I'm doing a disservice to you Paul but uh, give it your best shot
0: <laughs> no well I mean are uh, the two uh, members of Congress going over there I've, I've always felt this way there's been this like idiotic idiotic because it, it's all for show and it has no real dividend other than maybe burnishing the reputations of the people who go there you know the, the you know people from Congress are going to the scene of whatever overseas so they can see firsthand and learn what's going on. Come huh. on, give me a break. They don't learn anything. The whole thing is set up for them. What, you know how, how much can you learn anyway, just dipping in there and then coming back to the United States. So that's been a long-standing. I, I don't know how that developed in the first place. It, we'd be much better off if that was just taken out of the realm of possible gambits that people in congress or any officials wanted to do and grandma grandma pelosi's really mad
1: you don't you don't mess with granny you know <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah well by the way you know look in this little time left i will say you know it, even though the afghanistan story is happening right now it's so important but after pelosi i was really impressed with what she's doing to get these two infrastructure bills yes, yes. over the finish line. And in the long run, that is going to revolutionize America. The, the one that basically passed the, ha- the Senate already with, I think, yeah. I know, about 18, 17 or 18 Republican votes that's going to improve highways, Going to get internet connectivity, you know, in places where it wasn't before. Uh, bridges and all of that stuff. Trains. you will be able to take a fast train from from New York to Los Angeles, like in most other parts of the world. That's going to revolutionize, in a good way, the United States. And then the the multi-trillion-dollar human infrastructure that is going to revolutionize. American life as well. Uh, you know free tuition for anyone who wants to go to community college, uh, you know all kinds of uh, very, very crucial things which will bring America by the way in line with what many European countries have already been doing the decades. And it looks like despite all the criticism, again the criticism of Biden, the criticism of Pelosi, of Chuck Schumer, It looks like, notwithstanding that criticism, that those two bills will wind up on Biden's desk and he'll sign them into law. And when that happens, we're going to see among the most positive revolutionary impacts in the United States since the New Deal. And I think that is something to really look forward to. 90
1: seconds, Paul.
0: Well, listen. It's been a pleasure talking to you, <laughs> as always. I
1: gotta have you. I gotta have you back cause we didn't talk about Cuomo. I have to have you back at some point. I'll, I'll figure out a date, and uh, and, uh, and and have you back and talk about Cuomo because I really wanted to unpack Cuomo and Kathy Hochul with you a little bit as well. So we, we need we need to like hit that at some point. Uh, maybe next week or the week after. We'll see what you can do.
0: I'm always ready to talk. So... Uh well, listen it's been a bit of pleasure as always Bob. Paul thank you so
1: much uh, and, and I, I adored our conversation about foundation and old time science fiction and I'm glad we were able to connect it in some way to the events that are happening right now for us and yeah you know and, and everybody please uh, give me the website one more time Paul before we lose the time we have 30 seconds I feel like Amy Goodman here we have 30 seconds left <laughs>
0: Just go to Twitter, at Paul Levin, P-A-U-L-L-E-V. You'll find it, links to everything there.
1: This has been Lunch on Thursdays. Captain Phil filling in for Bill McNulty. My guest, Paul Levinson. The Light on Light Through Podcast.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. And I will be back here soon with another episode of Light on Light Through could be a review of a new television series, could be another interview, who knows. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and enjoy.